This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. It's time to expect more from your network. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges. Today on Government Matters, can intelligence technologies really replace the human spy? The future of U.S. information gathering in this new era of smart technologies. And Congress has passed a $1.5 trillion budget for this fiscal year. The Department of Defense gets over $780 billion, and $13.6 billion goes to aid for Ukraine. And the Biden administration has made it a priority to advance equity in government services. Government Matters starts right now. This is Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news trends and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm Mimi Gargis. Information gathering technologies using facial recognition and artificial intelligence have their uses, but the really actionable and useful intelligence still comes from human spies and agents. Douglas London is a former senior operations officer for the CIA and is an associate professor at Georgetown University School of Foreign Service. He's also the author of The Recruiter, Spying and the Lost Art of American Intelligence. Doug, welcome. Good morning. How are you today? So the... the um, a situation like Russia invading Ukraine, what are the limitations of relying on technologies for intelligence as opposed to human uh, intelligence gathering? You know, the war in Ukraine really illustrates the point my book makes, that in this age of great power competition, where technology and disinformation so influence the battle space, that our need for human sources, for insiders who could tell us what's going on in the reality is more critical than ever. I mean, do we know what impact human intelligence has had in the, the lead-up and execution of this war in Ukraine? The way the information has been presented to us, the declassified intelligence that we've heard from Secretary of State Blinken and General Austin and the President himself, speaks in terms of high confidence, which is really an intelligence buzzword for having multiple streams of information, multiple sources, and you can't just rely on any one particular stream, just not technology, not human. So I think the, the buzzwords we've been hearing suggest there's a human thread there somewhere. What are the types of intelligence questions technology can answer for us? Well, technology did a great job of letting us know that the Russians were sending forth a mass number of troops and armor and aircraft surrounding Ukraine and to Belarus. It didn't tell us what their plans were, what they were going to do with them. So your ability to interpret in a world where intelligence being imperfect because it's incomplete on a good day really means understanding how to fill in the pieces of the jigsaw puzzle that you don't have. And you've said that um, technology makes spying harder. How is that? Well, this is the day of biometrics and facial recognition, and everyone's carrying a tracking device on their phones, their watch, and such like that. So we have to innovate, create, and actually use technology, sometimes against technology, in order to clandestinely meet the agents that we do work with on the streets. So the age of just putting on a fake mustache and, and going out there as a different person, that's over? I wouldn't say it's over. I'd say it has to merge with how we can beat technology, sometimes using it, but often beating the person behind the technology. You can't beat machines, but you can beat people. You mentioned this before, the declassifying of information about Russia's intentions, and that was done very quickly and very openly. What do you make of that, and, and do you think it made a difference? It's unprecedented. The, the, the best possible example was December of 1980 when then-Soviet Union was planning to invade Poland, and we had a very 
well-placed agent in the, in the Polish chief of command who provided us the plans for that, and we exposed that. But more recently, we've seen products such as finished intelligence, the Khashoggi report, that on Russian meddling. Those are analytic products that take a long time. This has been a steady stream of raw reporting from perhaps agents and technical means, and, and it's really unusual, but it's had quite an impact. So you think it's had an impact on this Russian war against Ukraine? Do you think that that declassifying and being very open about this is what Russia's doing, this is what they're planning on doing, and we've got high confidence, as you said, did that make a difference? Did that change anything? I mean, they still invaded. I, I have to acknowledge it has. As a spy, it makes the hairs on my neck go up, the idea of, like, releasing classified information, the danger, perhaps, to our sources and our means. But in this case, I don't believe it was designed to preempt the Russians from invading. I think we were certain it was going to happen and Putin was going to go forward. But it, it prepared the battle space. It put pressure on our allies throughout NATO and the G7 through their own public to take action to do something to change the course of what would be this war we're now in. So what does the CIA and other intelligence uh, agencies need to be doing? What are you recommending? Well, coming out of 20 years of fighting a war on terrorism, we have to transition back to those dark secrets, if you would, of meeting people on the streets, because it's really people who will interpret what's going on, what we see, who help us discern truth from disinformation and tell us what plans are. We don't recruit agents overnight. It takes time. But I'd like to think that what I've seen and, and what Director Burns has done has been a direction to getting back into the foreign intelligence business, retraining our workforce, innovating our tradecraft, and adapting to the battlefield today to, to get the spies we need on the inside. And Doug, looking back at history, you know, the Cuban Missile Crisis, we had an issue with Russia and uh, nuclear weapons. What did we learn from that as far as the importance of human intelligence? It's a great example because, as you know, back then we were looking at U-2 photos, and we knew there were missiles, and we knew there were Russians, and we had a sense of their capability. But it was a spy named Penkovsky who was on the inside, who told us what the realities of Soviet capabilities were, but more importantly, what the leadership dynamics were inside, whether or not they'd actually go toe-to-toe -to -toe and risk a nuclear war with the United States. It made all the difference. He's referred to as a spy that saved the world. And, you know, in that case, there was the naval blockade. In this case, things are very different this time around. There's a lot more nuclear weapons in, involved than, than back in 1962. The, the stakes are high, and there's risks that we need to take, and it's having agents and intelligence collection that tells us how far can we push the edge of that envelope. All right. Well, hopefully not too far. <laughs> I would hope not. Doug, thanks so much for being on the program. Thanks, Mimi. Coming next, the total defense budget is over $780 billion, about 5% more than last year. Straight ahead on Government Matters, what's in the new fiscal 2022 budget and the additional funds for aid to Ukraine? You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Congress has passed a $1.5 trillion spending bill to fund the government through September. It includes $13.6 billion in emergency aid to Ukraine and a defense increase of nearly 5% over last fiscal year's levels. Leo Shane is the deputy editor for Military Times. He covers Congress, Veterans Affairs, and the White House. Leo, welcome. Well, thanks for the invite. So the continuing resolutions are over for this fiscal year. Was there a big sigh of relief at the Pentagon? Oh, absolutely. Look, this we're almost six months through the fiscal year, 
this has been a, a source of heartburn for Pentagon planners for, for the entire first half of the fiscal year because they haven't been able to start new programs. They haven't been able to buy uh, some of the new equipment they need. They've been rearranging funds to cover things like the, the military pay raise. So just having the certainty for the rest of the fiscal year and getting that new money in there, it just, it just gets rid of a lot of the headaches they've been dealing with. And what finally put them over the top on this? Was it the war in Ukraine? You know, that's, that's been one of the factors, and that was certainly this, uh, the supplemental money that's in there pushed them. But honestly, I mean, Congress has been inching towards this for months. A lot of folks were hopeful that this would get finished in February. Uh, you know, Congress loves a deadline, so um, just a, a new deadline, a new, a new fiscal cliff kind of uh, deadline there was, uh, was enough to, to get the deal this time. And, and thankfully, uh, now they can start working on the fiscal 2023 budget. Well, let's talk about the, the war in Ukraine. $13.6 billion in aid will go uh, to, to that country. How will that be used? Yeah, a lot of this is going to reimburse the DOD for money that's already been sent over there. So about a little more than $6 billion. There will be some new equipment put in that, some more um, anti-aircraft and anti-tank uh, weapons to go in. Uh, the president's already authorized about $1.2 in in equipment to go over there. Uh, a lot of this is going to pay for the troops that have been sent over there. About 14,000 U.S. troops are stationed all over Europe, not actually in Ukraine, but uh, but they're on temporary missions to help uh, fortify NATO allies and uh, help with their defenses, help with some humanitarian issues. There's money for humanitarian aid in here. There's money for economic sanctions against Russia and economic help for Ukraine. So it's a pretty wide variety of, of uh, different finances uh, designed to, to help Ukraine with their end of this war. So in the defense budget, uh, Leo, there was a big increase in research and development. Why was that, and what specifically will that be used for? Yeah, it's going to be a variety of things, but this has been a point of focus for the DOD. They, you know, it's not just enough to be buying the same equipment, not just enough to be looking at the same, uh, you know, the same issues here, but uh, that idea of investment, of modernizing the weapons, and of, of investing in, in new platforms, investing in new technologies. So... That money is going to be spread around a couple different, uh, couple different uh, agencies, and they'll look to build on that again in next year's budget too. This has also been a point of contention with some of the, uh, you know, some of the progressives in Congress. They say there's been a lot of money put in research. There's been a lot of money put in recapitalization of, of efforts. Uh, we need to start reining in some of the defense budget. But at least now there's, there's bipartisan agreement between some of the more uh, fiscal conservative Democrats and the Republicans that money was needed. Let's talk about the Navy. There's $26.7 billion to buy 13 new ships. What kind of ships are we talking about? Yeah, look, it's a, it's a range of different ships they've been looking to invest in the Navy uh, across, especially as we see um, Indo-Pacific uh, tensions rising here. Um, you know, significant increases for each of the services across the board. Um, so, you know, in terms of specific uh, ships, I, I don't have the, the breakdown of all of them with me right now. but. Um, you know, there's a lot of a lot of concern about the Navy being able to have new platforms, especially as we see some of these aging ships and aging platforms being able to uh, to you know not just keep those sustained, but to, to move on to, to newer ones and to better ones. There is um, 686 million dollars to deal with the water contamination issue linked to the Red Hill facility in Hawaii. What's going on with that? Yeah, look, this is a, a major concern for the Defense Department and for a lot of members of Congress. There's been contamination of the water for, uh, for troops there for quite some time. This has just been discovered. DOD has been dragging its feet over the issue of whether or not they should take all of these strategic fuel reserves out 
while they fix the problem, while they address the problem. They finally relented in recent weeks, but it's a lot of money. It's a very costly thing. There are concerns about what that does for the strategic reserves and uh, the, the uh, military's ability to use that fuel, access that fuel if they need it. Um, but by the same token, it's, it's, it's poisoning the water there. So, uh, you know, the families of, of uh, service members living there need to be confident that they can, can access water. Right now, a lot of them are living off of bottled water. So Congress is putting that money in to make sure that they can speed that process up and, and take care of those folks. And what about the Air Force? What are we looking at for new aircraft? Yeah, quite a quite a few buys, a few new air wings for the Air National Guard. Again, the same the same idea as the Navy. They want to put that money in, uh, get some new uh, get some new platforms in there, and really find a way to make sure that they're keeping up with adversaries like China. Um, make sure that they've got the the overall air power they need. And Leo, what is uh, what is the defense budget telling you as far as priorities for the for the department? What's the message you're taking away from this budget? Look, the, the big thing is that we've heard for the last few years that, you know, when Democrats take over, they might be pulling it back down. They might be, uh, you know, reining in some of this spending, maybe even see a decrease in the defense budget. That didn't hold true. Um, you know, Republicans and, again, a lot of the, the fiscal conservative Democrats have said, look, we need to keep investing in, in the defense department. Uh, this isn't a time to pull back. There's enough threats. There's enough concerns there. So. I think some of these alarms that have gone out in recent years that, that Democrats are going to pull in defense spending or the Defense Department, the, the gravy train's over, they're not going to see as much. We still saw a pretty healthy, almost 5% increase in defense, the defense budget. So, uh, you know, moving ahead, I would expect those to continue as we look to the, the fiscal 2023 budget. It wouldn't be a surprise to see that number go up by almost that much again. All right, Leo, thanks very much for joining us today. Anytime. Coming next, advancing equity in public service is a priority for President Biden. Straight ahead on Government Matters, how the administration can seize the opportunity and make a difference. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Advancing equity in government services is a major priority for the Biden administration, but to see real results, there needs to be effective action. That's according to Michael McAfee, president and CEO of PolicyLink. It's a nonprofit seeking to advance racial and economic equity. Michael, welcome to the program. It's a pleasure to be with you. It, you, you wrote in an article that the Biden administration has a once-in-a-generation opportunity to advance equity. Why is now a unique opportunity? Well, this is a unique opportunity because even though we've made progress in America, nearly one in three people are still economically insecure. So think about that, 100 million people struggling to make ends meet. And at the same time that we have that startling statistic, we've never had all three sectors come to racial equity. We've got government coming to racial equity at every level, corporations and the nonprofit sector what people are realizing is that this nation can't be all that it can be when you have one in three people being left behind from the, its economic prosperity. So this is why it's so critical. The Biden administration has done something transformative in centering racial equity. And now we can finally realize the invitation that was embedded in our founding to finally perfect this nation so that it is worthy of the multiracial democracy that we have. 
Michael, you, you, say, you say this, quote, our government has too often reinforced, if not exacerbated, systemic racial inequality. How so? Well, when you think about the design of the nation, ex exclusion was a part of that design. And now inclusion for all must be the part of the design. So think, for example, housing. In the 60s and 70s, my parents wouldn't have been able to buy a home in California where I live right now because of redlining, wouldn't have been able to do it. You think about communities where folks are doing an amazing job helping people um, get bank accounts, get their credit scores up so that they can buy a home. And then municipalities um, issue fines and fees that actually strip that wealth away from those families. So the bottom line is government can play a role and working against the very results that it's trying to achieve. And if we can stop that, if we can stop that hurt, if we can stop that intentional or unintentional way, we treat poor people. We have a fighting chance to make sure that everyone can participate, prosper and reach their full potential. So you outline four main actions that the administration can take to jumpstart the process of equity. The first is ensuring that agencies know the full extent of the problem. How do you ensure something like that? Well, there are plenty of books out there from the color of law. Um, it could go on down the list, but if you started with color of law, you would see the elegant design of how housing was constructed to be exclusionary in America. We want institutions to understand the origin story and not as a way of casting blame. But if you don't understand some of the root causes of the problems today, you actually can't solve them. So we believe that if institutions start by understanding the nation's origin story, their origin story, and the historical context with which we're operating in, we could actually craft strategies that would actually work much better than the ones we have today. You also recommend that the administration should work to reduce bureaucracy and administrative burdens on people trying to access government services. Do you have specific recommendations on how to do that? Yes, the first is we should not see people in a hostile light. I mean, think about it, in a pandemic, we were debating whether folks deserve $300 or not. At the same time, we were calling them heroes. Um, that's just unacceptable. And a big example of that is if you look around the country today, you'll see billions of dollars still unspent on rental assistance. Those dollars were let out months ago. But that's a result of how we view the very people who live in this country who are not wealthy. And so what we want uh, this government to do is to not hold a hostile disposition towards for everyday folks, but see them as worthy of the resources that will allow them to move into the middle class and beyond. Michael, you also um, recommend that the administration should prioritize increased diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility in government roles. Isn't the administration already doing that? The administration is doing that, but it's insufficient more is needed and it's not a critique of the biden administration all of our institutions need to continue to ask themselves the question how do they renew how do they renew to be able to do the work that this moment requires and as this nation becomes a nation of color we've got to ask ourselves a key question what happens to a nation founded on stolen land genocide and slave labor has never apologized for it and the thing that it has never really loved now is getting ready to become the majority in that nation We've got a lot of work to do to make sure that folks who have been historically excluded now can join in this nation. 
And so we all have work to do, even at my own organization. I've got work to do at this moment. Well, you also say that uh, the administration should recruit and retain more diverse federal leadership. Where are the current gaps in that effort? Well, the current gaps are really having leaders who understand um, this concept of equity um, from all races. Um, it is having leaders who are not afraid to talk about that 100 million as I'm talking about them as key to this nation's success. Having leaders that um, do not shy away from the fact that it is okay to love everyone and to serve everyone in this nation, that that is not exclusionary. Having leaders who have that muscle to do that, having leaders who have the muscle to say, let's disaggregate the data and figure out what people need in local context, whether they're in the suburbs, in rural America, in the Mississippi Delta, or in our urban centers. All right, well, Michael, I appreciate you being on the program. We'll be sure to be talking about this uh, more. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. If you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website at govmatters.tv. And tell us what you thought about today's program. Send us your comments on LinkedIn. You can follow us at Government Matters Media. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 10.30 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gerges. Stay tuned for an interview with our podcast sponsor, Hughes Network Systems. I'm here with Tony Bardo, Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, welcome. Can you start by just telling me what Hughes does for the federal government? What we do is provide connections. We connect the dots, meaning we use a number of various technologies to connect federal agencies, their locations, their people, in ways that are not traditional, uh, meaning that the connections that formed the government networks as we know them today and has, as we've known them for a lot of years have been through dedicated facilities, dedicated network facilities. We have been taking this different approach to connecting all of our customers through the use of broadband, originally satellite broadband, but now managed networks and managed broadband services that include cable, include DSL, 
include wireless, include uh, traditional fiber, and, uh, and, and satellite, of course. Well, tell me about the HughesNet Gen 5, because that's the largest high-speed satellite internet service. It is, it is. It's a very exciting service. We launched it um, back in 2016, and even an earlier version of it, Gen, which was known as Gen 4, that are called high-throughput satellites. And these are satellite services that took satellite connectivity and speed and capability and capacity to a whole nother level. This is a service that we sell to our consumers. We sell it in a more robust fashion to um, our industry partners and customers, as well as the government. Well, tell me what you're doing for the federal government with relationship to artificial intelligence and machine learning. We use our artificial intelligence capabilities to drive innovation with respect to customer care, customer delivery, the use of understanding what our partners are capable of supplying in terms of broadband uh, services. And we use them to sort of understand in a proactive way, in a, in a speedy way, what could be predictive behavior of the network and use that predictive behavior to monitor the networks and monitor the network services. It takes sort of the guesswork out of it because we use the artificial intelligence to, to give us more information than we would be able to get manually. And I understand, Tony, that you're also working on um, critical network backup and emergency connectivity for first responders. Obviously, that's going to be more and more of an issue. Can you tell me a little bit about what Hughes does in that arena? Well, we've had a great deal of success in this area, and we've been pleased and, and honored to, to serve the particularly the FEMA community and the emergency response community with rapid deployment of satellite technologies where all of a sudden those technologies because of a disaster are no longer uh, capable of, of connecting people. For instance, in Puerto Rico a few years ago during the hurricanes, we deployed hundreds of satellite services throughout the island, both commercially and in support of FEMA's efforts. And in the absence of terrestrial ground uh, infrastructure that was working, satellite was really critical. All right. Well, Tony, thank you so much. Nice chatting with you. Thank you, Mimi. Nice chatting with you. Thanks for listening. Our daily show is produced by Catherine Roloff. Our managing director is Jerry Foley. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.